few words and turn back to I think it's indisputable to recognize that our world has a hunger for happiness. In fact, I'd go so far as to say this morning that our culture has made happiness an unquestionable norm that everyone should experience. I saw a billboard the other day that told people where they could get happiness. The billboard said, happiness is to wear a size small dress, which immediately left me out. So I'm wondering, where is happiness? French mathematician and Christian Blaise Pascal said, all look for happiness without exception. Every single person in this auditorium today is looking for happiness, and not just in these walls, but outside these walls. So the question that Psalm 1, I think, gives to all of us to answer is, what will make you truly happy? I think to find the answer to that universal question, you have to perhaps find the source of it. And maybe to do that, you have to search the internet, or so everyone thinks. Put the word happiness in Google and search, and you'll find this. There are literally, I'm not lying, one billion 890 million results for happiness. You can choose from all of those, but I thought if I took that route, I'd be incredibly unhappy because it'd take the rest of my life to go through them. So I wanted to narrow it down. So I searched on Amazon instead. And I found that it's narrowed down quite a bit. Now it's only a little over 60,000 results that I got. And that lessened it dramatically, and I found out that a lot of them were books. And some of the titles are, You Happier, The Art of Happiness, Chasing Happiness, The Happiness Hypothesis, The Happiness Project, Hoping for Happiness, Hardwiring Happiness, and on and on it goes. And obviously the conclusion is there is no secular consensus about the definition of happiness or how you can attain happiness at all. And for some, according to those books, some happiness is a project that you really work at, like something at your job, and you probably will never complete it in this life, but you kind of work at it. For some, happiness demands a scientific approach because happiness is all about brain chemistry and doing the things that you can do to get it that way. For others, happiness is a work of art that you kind of paint with your life by all the decisions that you make over time. For others, happiness is something that you pursue, but truthfully, it's a fleeting hope, and you can only hope to taste a little bit of it in this life. One author calls it artificial or plastic happiness. But what if there was a search engine that you could put the word happiness in and the results came up and there was only one. What if there's only one result that you had? Not, not 1.9 billion, not even 60,000, but in this particular search engine, you put in the word happiness, and the true lasting source of happiness, there would only come one response. If that was true, would you not agree with me that that would completely change your life? 
I mean, wouldn't that change everybody's life? I mean, if someone had the ability to narrow down where to find happiness and how to enjoy it, and there was only one thing you had to know, wouldn't that be great? What if I'm telling you this morning that that is really true? What if it's really true? What if there's only one true, lasting source of happiness, one book, one definition, one way to find it? By now, I'm sure you've guessed it because we're in church, aren't we? I mean God and his word. Specifically this morning, I want to say the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. If you'll read them very closely, they have headings. There are five books in the Psalms. Each one ends with a doxology. And as many commentators have said, Psalm 1 and 2 are the gateway to the Psalms. That it really lays down the foundational work of what all the Psalms are doing because they are praise Psalms to God. They are prayers. They are songs to worship him. In fact, if you look at our text, Psalm 1 at the beginning and Psalm 2, which are the two introductory psalms, they begin, Psalm 1 begins and Psalm 2 ends with the exact same Hebrew word, oh, the blessings of. That's how the psalm, oh, the blessings of the man. And then at the end of Psalm 2, it says, oh, the blessings of all those who take their refuge in God. See, here's the thing about happiness biblically. It is for individuals but it's also for everyone. See, our psalm is the blessings, the happiness of a single man, an individual, a kind of person. But Psalm 2 says, you know what? It's more than just a select few people that can be happy. Everybody, listen, everybody can be truly happy, but you have to know God. You have to know God. So biblical happiness is possible, but it's narrow. See, lasting happiness, true happiness, Psalm 1 is going to tell us this morning, is only found in the Lord and in his word. But as you read the psalm, maybe you picked up on it easily, as I did, that it's a contrast in Psalm 1. It's a contrast between two ways of life, and it's laid out for us pretty simply at the very end when it says, there's the way of the righteous and there is the way of the wicked. It's a contrast between two ways of life. Hear me. One of these ways is going to bring happiness, a happy life. But the other one, in contrast, will bring hollowness, a hollow life. And as always, what the psalmist does is he wants us to take a look at both ways and then ask ourselves this question, which way best describes my life? Not the way I wish it was with the way that it truly is. So this morning in the time we have remaining, we're going to unpack those two choices, those two ways, all along asking ourselves, am I living out the happy life or the hollow life? So let's look at them one at a time. The first one is in verses 1 through 3, the happy life. Blessed, it says. Blessed. The word is 26 times in the Psalms, and it means joyful, satisfaction, fulfilled, See, can I start with a principle this morning? Happiness is not primarily about what you have. It's not primarily about what you do. It's about who you are. Happiness belongs to a certain kind of person. And you're going to see that it's not a rich person. It's not even a religious person. It is a righteous person. 
So happiness comes by not from having things, not from doing things, but from being. Not having, doing, but being a certain kind of person. And that person is a righteous person in contrast to a wicked person. So we're going to find out this. Happiness comes from righteousness. Hollowness comes from wickedness. So if we want to not be hollow and wicked and want to be happy, we have to be righteous. And what does that life look like? If I want to have God's happiness, I want to know righteousness and be righteous, what does it look like? There are two aspects of it in verses 1 through 3. The first is a negative aspect. Did you notice verse 1? He doesn't start with positives. He starts with three nots. Not, not, not. Three negatives. Not walking, not standing, not sitting. Not in the council, not in the way, not in the seat. Two groups of three, both showing progressions. See, here's how it works. In order to be truly happy, do you understand this? To be truly happy, you have to see the things that you're doing wrong and change your allegiances. Let me say it again. To be truly happy, you have to first and foremost see the things that are wrong in your life and make the changes of your allegiances. Not walking, not standing, not sitting. Those three words, walk, stand, and sit, are a progression of relationships, associations. Wicked, sinners, scoffers. See, when you walk, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Don't be associated with them. And see, it's you're beginning to accept them. You hang around them. You begin to think that way. See, you listen to their advice and their opinions and you take stock in it and you start accepting those people and their ways of life. Then it says you begin to walk and then you stand. You stand with them. You're more closely associated with them. You almost become partners with them and there's a progression. And you're not only thinking like them and now you're behaving like them because you're following in their way, it says. And then he says, lastly, you sit. You sit in the seat of the scornful. When you sit in the Bible, wherever you sit is where you belong. Remember in Genesis 13, it finally said after Lot made a progression, he was living in a tent, and then he gradually, step by step, gets closer to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then finally we find Lot sitting in the gate of Sodom. He belonged there. He didn't, as a Christian, as a believer, he didn't belong there, but that's how he progressively moved, and he was sitting there. He belonged there. See, that's what happens. See, if you want a happy life, you're progressively not doing those things. See, notice the person who is happy in the Lord has come to this realization, I don't belong to people who don't belong to God. I don't belong to them. I don't belong to, I don't think the way they think. I don't behave the way they think. Listen, I don't belong to them. Wicked sinners, scoffers, use all throughout wisdom literature, and they are basically three categories of what the Bible terms a fool. A fool is not someone who's not smart or intellectually have acumen, it's someone who is ultimately against God. The fool has said in his heart, no. God, Psalm 14. See, happiness as a person is that they discovered they belong to the Lord and not to the people of this world. It's the person who realizes this 
And I've seen it on so many occasions in people's lives when they get saved. They have to turn away from things that have your heart other than God. They turn away from worldly thinking, worldly behaving, worldly belonging. And here's what they come to the realization of. They come to the realization they need a different set of friends. They need new ways of finding happiness. And they need a new seat relationally in which they're sitting in their lives. See, people who can't find true and lasting happiness, the reason they can't is because they're looking for it in all the wrong places. Wrong counsel, wrong relationships, wrong lifestyles, i.e. the prodigal son. If you read Luke 15 and Jesus' story, you'll know the prodigal son gets his inheritance. He gets a lot of money. He's tired of his dad's authority, and so he goes into the far country, and he lives however he wants. But after the money's gone, and his friends are gone, and his life is gone, the Bible says an interesting phrase in 1517 of Luke's gospel, he came to his senses. Another version says he came to himself. He comes to the realization that the reckless living, as it's described, doesn't bring happiness. The prodigal son, if he could stand here this morning, would say this, there is no happiness in the inheritance money I got from my dad. There's no happiness in my independence from his authority. I thought if I didn't have to do what my parents said, and I was out from under that, that I would really be happy, and he found out he was wrong. There is no happiness in sexual freedom. I thought if I could do what I want and go from whatever morality I wanted, that there would be happy in that. And here's what the prodigal son says. No, it's not true. There's no happiness in the far country. Everyone and everything it offers me, there wasn't happiness. All it offered me was isolation from God, isolation from the community of people who actually cared about me. See, it was plastic. It was artificial. If you're not happy this morning, think about it in your heart this morning. If you're not happy, have you ever asked this, why are you not happy? Have you ever considered that maybe you're not happy because you started looking for happiness in the wrong place to begin with? See, that's what the psalmist says. You've got to come to the end of the fact that you don't know where happiness is, that all the things that you think bring you happiness, you need to put this on it, not you have to come to the real, you're wrong about happiness. Because every time you seek happiness in someone or something other than God or rather than God, you'll never be able to ultimately find it. And there are so many people, and perhaps some of you here today, even as God's people, you say this. See, I want to be happy, but I don't want to lose the person I'm dating in my life. I don't want to lose the person I'm living with. I would love to ultimately marry them, and I know what this lifestyle I'm living is. I, don't, I want to be happy, but I don't want to put a knot on that. See, I want to be happy, but I don't want to change the way I think and approach my job. See, it's everything to me, and I work all the time because I get money, and I get identity from it, and I get pleasure from it. See, I don't want to, I know what God says, and I know I shouldn't do this, and I know I shouldn't cut corners and be unethical, and I know this shouldn't be the main part of my life, but it is. I don't want to change that. I want to be happy, says the teenager, the young adult, but I don't want to say no to my friends. I like hanging with them. 
I like some of the things we do. Yeah, I know some of the things that we look at and some of the things we do are wrong. I want to be happy, but I don't want, see, I don't want to, here's what you're saying, I don't want to put a knot on those relationships. The prodigal put a knot on the far country and everything that had to do with it. And in order to come to that place, he had to realize that those things did not bring him happiness. You know how I know that that's the conclusion he came to? Because when you watch him walk home, you know what he says? He's rehearsing this speech to his dad. And he says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just make me a slave. You know what he came to the realization is? Hey, to go home, I'll be happy. And you know what going home and happiness means? I don't have to be or have or do what it meant to be a son. I don't have to have the riches. I don't have to have the position. I don't have to have or do any of those things. Here's what he came to the realization. It's not what my dad has or what my dad can give me. It's my dad. It was the father himself that would bring him happiness. So he's willing to say no to all the other things that he enjoyed in life or had before. See, he says not to them. Why? Because he knows now where real, true, lasting happiness comes from. It was the father. But see, that's the happy life. The happy life starts with negative It's a negative. You can't do these three things. But the happiness doesn't just involve a denial. It involves a delight. Positive aspect of happiness. But, see the contrast in verse 2? Look at it in your text. But, see, but his delight. In other words, his delight is not, his way of finding happiness is not in those other things in verse 1. In contrast, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. If you look in Deuteronomy 17, and Israel's king, if he was not going to be like all the kings of the nation, find his happiness in the things that they did with power, position, all that, here's what the Bible says in Torah. In Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, just like this text, there were three knots the king couldn't do. He couldn't accumulate Horses, wives, and silver and gold. Because all those things would take him away from his allegiance and dependence on God. And then after the three knots, there was one positive. You know what the king had to do? He had to take all the five books of Moses, write his own personal copy with his hand, set it behind, beside his throne, and all of his days he would meditate on that and make all of his decisions based on it. You know what God is saying? See, from the servant in the lowest house, all the way in Israel to its king, it doesn't matter who you are, you can have happiness. But you have to put knots in place, denials, and there has to be delights. It's not just happiness by subtraction, it is happiness by addition. And you have to have a delight. A delight in the Lord and meditating on it day and night. See, he didn't just read it. He didn't just read it. He delighted in it. He loved it. He was transformed by it. Two, verse one, the word plot, they are same in Hebrew. It means to be saturated, to think deeply about over and over again. And here's what the psalmist says. I've thought about it. I've contemplated it. And I thought about this. This doesn't bring happiness. I've thought long and hard. I meditate. I plotted. 
Listen, this isn't going to do it for me, but God does it for me. See, I delight in him and his ways. And he says, and when you make the decision that I deny this, but I delight in this, here's the life that comes as a result. Happiness is never something that we seek in and of itself. It is a byproduct. It's what you get when God is your life. He says he's like a tree. See the metaphor Verse 3, he's like a tree. It's like an echo of the Garden of Eden. It's like you were human and what you were meant to be from the beginning. He says, see, this tree is a unique tree. It's rooted. It has a root system that is constantly drawing water and nourishment. And the idea, obviously, is, is the water that the tree finds its resources from, its happiness from. It's the word of God. See, this is a guy who said, listen, this is where I find happiness. It's deep in the word of God. And by the way, trees don't ever plant themselves. The Bible says he was planted here. See, he knows God. God has taken his life out of all the other things that he used to have in his life. And he says, I, it's not to that. Now, see, I, don't, I put a knot on all that. And God has taken him and literally transplanted him from that soil to this soil. And now he has a root system. See, God has blessed him with roots. If you look up on the internet, you'll find shepherd's tree. It's very small. It's not very tall. Not even much taller than me, really. But it is the world record for having the deepest roots. It probably is anywhere from 6 to 12 feet tall. But its roots go down, have been measured over 230 feet. Because it's found in the Kahali Desert... And in the desert, you know as well as I do, a lot of sunshine, but very little rain. In order for that tree not just to survive, but to thrive, it has to have an incredibly deep root system. You see, roots are for people who are substantial. Roots allow you to endure, to last. Roots enable you to handle storms and droughts. Roots give you stability and uncertainty when you live in the 21st century of America. See, the roots are down, it says, what are the roots down into? Streams, literally in Hebrew, canals. Today we'd call them irrigation. It's always tapping into the source of the word of God that in every circumstance, in every situation, that's where the happiness comes from. But did you notice in the text, it's rooted, it has streams, it's always tapping into God's happiness. But it says this, that the tree goes through seasons. Did you know this? To be happy doesn't always mean that things go well. Seasons. I like this season, don't you? I like the warmer weather. I'm not a big fan of the winter and the snow. Amen, right? It's fine. Please say that. Right? I like the seeds. I like the green. Don't you like the green stuff? I like the fruit. I like all that stuff. I don't like the barrenness and the trees don't have any leaves. It's ugly, right? Depressing. But here's the thing. See, the guy who's rooted, the guy who's happy, he has seasons. You know what? He's not always green. He's not even always fruitful because it says he has his fruit is born in its season. In other words, it's not fruitful every single season. 
He's affected by the weather. He's affected by the seasons. But at the same time, did you get it? He's affected by it, but it says his leaf doesn't wither. It's not that he doesn't have storms. They don't, he doesn't feel it. He's not robotic. He's not indifferent. He, right? He's not stoic. It's not that he never cries or has problems or maybe fights fears or anxieties. It's not that that never happens, that it happens to him, but his roots are so deep in the word of God and in God that it doesn't wither him. It doesn't kill him. It doesn't ruin his life. You know why? Because his roots are down in something else. So much so that no matter what the season is, no matter how hot the sun, how heavy the storms, the storms of suffering, right, the drought of the difficulty, it doesn't matter how bad it is. Here's what it says. Whatever he does, he prospers. He survives. He thrives in it. See, the first mistake we make in looking for happiness is thinking that we can find it in the externals. Externals, right? Can I tell you? And maybe you've already figured this out, but maybe you haven't. If you're seeking happiness in your circumstances and in your situation, you are going to live a life incredibly always disappointed. Happiness is not found. It is not found in what is around you, but what is under you. Happiness comes from where your roots are. Happiness never consists in what happens to you, but what happens in you. So let me ask you, where are your roots today? The happy life, the blessed person, has their roots in God and in his word. But there are people, perhaps even God's people, who have their roots in other things. And you try to find happiness in the end of a needle or at the bottom of a bottle or in someone else's bed. Happiness in a maxed out bank account, a retirement fund that you don't have to worry about what your needs are going to be. Living out the American dream and all of its trappings. Jeremiah warns us in his prophecy in chapter 2 and verse 13 when he says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out for themselves broken cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, a lot of people are so disillusioned and hollowed out, and here's why. Because they keep pouring their search and their desires and their labors for happiness into a well that has a hole in the bottom. And the more you put in, the quicker it becomes empty. But you keep pouring it in the same place over and over, thinking that it's really going to work. It's just the next girlfriend I have. It's the next job I have. It's the next thing I get my way. It's the next promotion. It's the next cool car, the bigger house I have. It's the next thing. And the next thing really never happens because it's got a big hole in the bottom. And God said, see, you have turned for the cisterns that have holes in the bottom for happiness. And it's me, but you've forsaken me, he says. I don't think it's too far to say this. The happy life is the rooted life, the rooted life in God. But I did tell you at the beginning, did I not? That happiness... Or blessedness, the psalm says, is a two ways. There's two ways. The happy life described positively and negatively in verses 1 through 3. But he says there's also another option that you can choose, and many do, and perhaps some here. It's the hollow life. Did you notice this in verses 4, 5, and 6, that each one of those verses start with the wicked? The wicked, and literally it starts this way in verse 4. The wicked, in Hebrew, not so 
In other words, so abruptly, such a terse little statement, a little staccato negativity there. And he says this, he says, it's just not so with the wicked. I mean, you couldn't get much more polar, extremely opposite. He says, this is the person, the kind of person who will never be happy. They are like, second metaphor, like a tree, like chaff. What is a life of chaff? If you take grain... And this is the kind of a picture of being on a threshing floor at harvest time. You take grain, you toss it up in the air, and you thresh it, right? Grain has an internal kernel to it. It's what's substantial about it. It makes it heavier. But when you take away the chaff, which is the little sleeve it's in, the outer husk of it, see, the husk or the outer shell of it is weightless. It really doesn't hold any weight. It has no substance. It's basically useless. And when the wind comes and you throw it up in the wind, see, it blows the worthless stuff, the chaff away. And now the kernel, the substantial part, is left behind on the floor, that which you use. You know what the psalmist is trying to tell us with that analogy? He's saying a life of chaff is a life which is totally consists of externals only. It's a a life that is a facade. It's a superficial life. I call it a hollow life. A life without any internal realities backing up its rootlessness. That's all it is. It's just rootlessness. A life of chaffed means that you're a person constantly being blown around by the winds. And I see it all the time. Blown around from church to church. Morality to morality. Marriage to marriage, today gender to gender. I've seen it. Constantly blown around by the winds of public opinion. Churches who have to, oh, now this is popular, so let's do that. This is popular, let's do that. And let's change that. See, new trends that come around, blown around by winds emotionally, feelings. And when the storms of suffering and the drought of difficulty come, see, the chaff blows away. And here's why. It has no center anymore. It has no center. The kernel is gone. It's just a shell. See, are there any rooted convictions in your life? I mean, do you have any non-negotiables? Is there anything deep inside of you that is always there Always there, regardless of the winds blowing, regardless of the advantages or disadvantages of your circumstances that you're going through, regardless of how you feel, regardless if things never change in your situation, do you have rooted convictions about it? Do you have a center which is immovable that you are building your life around? Is that center God and his word? Is there anything that you always are true to, always believe in, always hold on to, regardless of consequences or circumstances? If not, you're living a life of chaff, hollowness, emptiness. The psalmist really wants us to know, well, what causes a life of chaff? The wicked, three times, the wicked, the wicked, the wicked, And you know what the Bible tells us in those verses about the wicked? Here's the main thing. In contrast to the blessed one, hollow people have no roots. 
Specifically, they have no roots in God. They don't have any roots in His Word. They don't find God to be the source of their happiness. See, wicked people, scoffing people, people who are described as sinners, they too are a kind of person. They're a kind of person who is marked by this. They leave God out of their lives. But don't get me wrong. They may believe in him. (laughs) They probably own a Bible. They go to church. They can talk religious language. But practically, day in and day out, small decisions, big decisions, he's left out. Not, Not marginalized, left out. He's left out in their thinking. He's left out in their behavior. He's left out in their priorities and their calendars and their schedules and in their belonging. See, that type of choice creates hollowness. It creates instability. You want to know what it looks like? Take a look around at our country. America is a national system that has left God out of everything. Left God out of our school system. Left God out of our political system. Left God out of our relational system. We are becoming a country that is hollowed out. We are a nation of chaff. And believe me, the winds are picking up and they are blowing. And soon, the chaff will be blown away because our center is gone. Because God is gone. And forgive me, but you can say amen to that because it's so true. But what about your life? Is it true in your life? See, there are consequences, friends. There are consequences to listening to, adapting to, and adopting the life and the thinking and the behavior and the belonging of wicked sinners and scoffers. Because verse 5 says this, and let it hit you, there for. So you don't just live a life that puts God outside of the center, pushes him out of it completely. You don't live that kind of life and then have nothing happen. Because here's what the psalmist says, you are hollowed out now. If that is true, you will be hollowed out later. You see what he says? Therefore, there is no standing. Wicked people can't stand in the judgment. They can't stand. You know why? Because when you stand with sinners, you can't stand with God. You can't have it both ways. You can't come to church on Sunday and say, I stand with God, but all week long I stand with sinners. It's hollow, he says. It's empty. See, your now affects your later. It does. Because it's, it, it's the measure and the demonstration of the kind of person that you are. Someday, the psalmist says, Project yourself into the future. There's going to be a day of judgment and a day of separation. And the separation will be put into two categories and only two. Whether you're righteous or whether you're wicked. And that will be determined by, watch, what you denied and what you delighted in. What you're willing to put a knot over in your life. And the happiness that you found. Did you find it in God? Were you connected to him? Because it has eternal ramifications. Because here is what the Bible says. Verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked shall perish. Three times 
The wicked, the wicked, the wicked, also three times. Perish, perish, perish. You get why they're connected? If you're wicked, if you ignore God, if you find your happiness in anything other than him, here's what the end will be. Perishing. That's the connection. But I'm so thankful this morning that one of the oldest verses, the most common verse is still true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, Jesus came with this message. There is happiness to be found. But you can't find it where you think you can because there's only one source. It's God and his word. If you want to be happy and not perish, you want to have eternal life, it's in the only begotten Son of God. It's in Jesus. It's knowing him, truly knowing him, and finding your happiness in all that he is for you. So let me ask you one more time. Where do you find true happiness? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, every person in this room is going down the way, the path, the road of one of those two options that we talked about. You're either living the happy life or you're living the hollow life. That's what wisdom literature does. It's antithetical contrast. It doesn't give you a middle ground too much. It's either one or the other. And the psalmist says, the blessed, happy life, you have to deny and delight. It has to be both. Is that you? Really, truthfully, is it you? Or would you say, Pastor Walker, the center is gone. I know how to read the Bible. I've done it. I pray. It's not that I don't come to church. But truthfully, Pastor, the center is gone. My Christianity is weightless. It's rootless. It's not the convictions that hold me from God's word and my love for him. The winds blow, and they blow me too. And as a Christian today, here's what I, I ask you today. Would you say and admit, and would you start here and say this? I need to realize the wrong places I'm finding happiness. I need to say not, Pastor Walker. There's a lot of nots I'm not saying, but I need to. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, say, that's my heart as a believer this morning. Please pray for me that like the prodigal son, I would come to my senses. Here's my hand, Pastor Walker. Pray for me. And I'll do that as I close in a moment. We just lift it and put it right back down. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? Just see, Pastor Walker, here's my hand. Pray for me. Pray for me. I need to come to my senses and try and happiness in God. Perhaps this morning you're here and you're thinking about the claims of Jesus and Christianity and you're religious and all of that. But truthfully, the way of the wicked that leaves God out, it's truthfully what I do. I would hate to come to that realization, but the reality of it is practically on a daily basis, it's not God and his word that guides and, and directs my life. It's me. It's the world. Friends. And I know where it's taking me. It's taking me to a day of judgment where I'm going to perish according to the word of God. 
And this morning from his word, by the spirit of God, I realized that. And this morning I need to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. He died and rose again. See, that I wouldn't have to perish. That I could have eternal life. I want that. I need that this morning. I know it's the first step to happiness is finding him as my Lord and Savior by faith. With every head bowed and every eye closed, say, Pastor Walker, I need to be saved. I need to give my life to Jesus and know him through his cross, death, and resurrection. Please pray for me. Would you slip your hand up and then I'll pray for you as well? Just slip it up in the balcony main floor and then put it right back down. I'll pray for you as well. Anyone? Just quickly, momentarily. Anyone? Father, you, you know the hands and you know the hearts, more importantly, and you know the needs of people, whether they raise their hand or not. Fighting it, struggling, don't want to admit it, won't even raise their hand because they don't want to see it. They want happiness, but they don't want to give up anything to get it. You're not most important to them. You're not supreme in the affections of their heart. Father, help us. Thank you that your mercy is more. Your amazing grace, your kindness, your patience, your long-suffering, as Jacob said in Genesis, is far more than we deserve. We're not worthy of the least of your mercies, but you're good and you're gracious. Thank you. For those who raise their hand as believers, may they find, again, their center in you. May they come to their senses. May they repent, surrender, and say no and yes to you. For any who might be here today who don't have the assurance of eternal life, that even now as I speak, they are perishing. Oh, Father, draw them by your Spirit as only you can, that they might have life in your name. For it's through that name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.